the best leaders challenge us. They ask difficult questions. They hold people accountable. They have high expectations. They keep raising the bar. They expect people to be impactful and do great work. But you don't want to work for a leader who's all stretch and no safety. That's Liz Weissman, management researcher, executive advisor, and New York Times bestselling author. That's just a recipe for misery and fear and people avoiding and hiding problems. But when leaders can create those two coexisting conditions, boom, like magic happens. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Liz Weissman to discuss what differentiates normal contributors from the most impactful team players, how to create a culture that empowers team members to drive meaningful results, and why the most effective leaders combat empathy with accountability. Instead of saying like, oh man, the client is making my life difficult. They're looking at that client going, What's difficult about the position that they're in right now? What's hard for them? And in what way might I be making things harder for them? Like, what can I do to help make their life easier? And so they start with this empathetic understanding of those people and organizations or institutions they serve. Because we all serve someone. And if we're not, we're probably not doing our job very well. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Liz Weissman is a renowned researcher and executive advisor. In addition to acting as the CEO of the Weissman Group, whose clients include Apple, Google, Tesla, and Twitter, she's also the best-selling author of Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. I began our conversation by asking Liz what motivated her to write her book. Here's the thing I've learned. I've been studying some of the best leaders and some of the worst leaders for well over a decade. And here's the thing I've learned is that people are wired for contribution. And when people work for leaders who underutilize them, they describe the experience not as like, oh, it's a good gig. They don't expect much from me. They describe it as frustrating and exhausting to under-contribute. Knowing like coming into work, knowing you have more knowledge and talent and insight than your boss uses or sees or more than your job requires. Like just kind of phoning it in is miserable for people. And this is true whether you work in law or you're an accountant or a software developer or work on a manufacturing line. But when people describe working for leaders who deeply utilize their capability, who give them hard things to do, who challenge them, who stretch them, They describe that experience as, okay, honestly, just a little bit exhausting because, you know, you're giving so much, but totally exhilarating. Like that feel when you have like a great workout and you're kind of tired, like, oh, that was hard. It was me getting off the Peloton the other day. I'm like, oh, that was hard, but I feel great. And that really, I think, was my real purpose in writing this book is how do you create a work experience where people can be valuable and feel that exhilaration of of contributing everything you have and growing while you're doing it? So I guess that's my agenda. And, and how do you define an impact player? Well, you know, an impact player, the metaphor comes out of the sports world. You know, the sports world has people that we call impact players that They're standout contributors. They're talented. They're talented athletes. They make plays. They get things done. They're the kind of people you turn to in a clutch. Like they're the people who get put out on the field when the stakes are high, when the team is behind, when you need to secure the win or, you know, execute the play. So they make an important contribution to the team, but they also make the entire team better. They're people who raise the level of play for the whole team. And 
you know, I started this research with this assumption that, you know, this is not limited to sports, that the work world has impact players. If you ask any manager, like, who are the impact players on your team? Oh, they'll tell you. Those names come to mind very quickly for most managers. They haven't always known why. Like, I don't know. There's just something about her. Like, there's this, like, I don't know, this je ne sais quoi. It's hard to describe, but I know when we're down and I need someone to come through, boom, I hand her the ball. Like, I can do a no-look pass. She's going to catch it. She's going to drive it through. And so I wanted to know why. What makes them different? What makes them tick? How do they think? How do, And what do they do differently that ends up in some ways seeming small, but creates big differentials in, in the impact they have? And from my understanding, I mean, just to give people some context that those that are listening, so your research on this was incredibly comprehensive. Like if you could speak to just the process that you underwent in, in order to discover some of the findings we'll talk about. Oh my gosh, Michael, you know what? Like if there's a way to suck up to me as a human being, it's pretty simple. It's like my favorite cookies or just tell me the research was comprehensive. Like it really, thank you, because I really tried to do really comprehensive research because I think there's so many management books out there that are like ideas people just make up and it sounds good, but we really tried to do very thorough research. And, you know, the nature of that was that we went out and talked to 170 managers and asked them to identify someone who was an impact player. And then someone who was what I called an ordinary contributor, not like average or barely getting done, but a rock solid contributor. And so I'm trying to figure out what are the differences between rock solid contributors, people who are good hires, good attorneys, good members of a team versus those that are driving huge portions of the business, the people who are winning the most difficult or critical cases in your world. And then I also asked the managers to compare an impact player with someone who was under contributing. And for me, this was the most fascinating part of the research. It wasn't like, oh, tell me about a high performer and a low performer. Like, you know, someone who can't find their way out of a paper bag, kind of low performer. An under contributor was someone who is smart, hardworking, and capable, talented. Could have been top of their class in school. But yet, strangely, they're under contributing. They're missing the mark. It's like they're enigmatic. Like somehow something's not firing right. The book is mostly about the difference between the ordinary contributor and the impact player. And you say that there's really three different categories, right? Because there's one in the middle too, right? There's like the high impact players, there's the under contributors, and then there's the typical contributors, right? But you mentioned all three are actually smart and talented. Yeah. And that's what I think what we tried to do in this research is hold those variables constant. So I did want to like, oh, don't tell me about the difference between someone who's really smart and someone who can't think. I want to know in a room full of equally smart talented, hardworking people. Why are some people completely off base? Other people are like turning a crank, going through the motions, and then other people are hitting it out of the park and making a huge difference. They're like business builders. They're game changers. Like that's what I want to know with those other variables held constant. And when it came to the value that these individuals deliver, what I found interesting is you mentioned that impact players are, are three times, like they deliver three times as much value as your typical contributor and 10 times as much value as those that are under contributing. Yeah. And it behooves managers and business owners to find the impact players out in the workforce and bring them into your organization and to see if you can raise the level of play for a whole team. Like, how do you build an entire team of impact players? You know, and unlike the concept of mm, an MVP, you know, where you think, oh, well, there's one. Like, we have to designate one MVP. It's actually possible to build an entire team that is thinking and working this way. So that was the quest I went on, which is like, how much of this is learnable? And how do you spread it across a firm? You found really, I think, five key differentiators just between impact players and contributors. And, and I'm sure we could do a podcast on, on every single one. But if you could just briefly mention this, the five and what those differentiators were. Yeah. So you've given me a challenge. It's the briefly part of this because each one of these is fascinating, I think, to unpack. But there are five differentiators, but they really stem from how people respond to five types of situations. What we found fundamentally is that the ordinary contributors 
They're stellar. They do their job. They take responsibility. They follow direction. They're focused. They carry their weight on teams. They're stellar in ordinary times. But when situations are fraught with uncertainty, a little bit of chaos, things outside of their control, like what we might call as like the VUCA world that we're in, the ordinary contributor falls short and their way of thinking falls short. And these are the five situations that really differentiate the impact players. The first is how they deal with messy problems, like problems that sit in no man's land. Like it's not this person's job or that person's, it's not this department, or it's just kind of, it's important, but no one is tasked with it. You know, the ordinary contributor does their job and their piece of it, whereas the impact player figures out the job that needs to get done and they go there. So they have a little healthy disregard for the job description. Not like shirking my job, but like, you know what? My job description is like base camp. It's kind of like what I do and where I hang out so that I can be in the right places when there's an emergency up mountain or an opportunity. Like this is where I move from to where there's something important. The second difference is how they deal with unclear roles where like, okay, we get, we're collaborating, but we're not sure like who's really the boss of this meeting or this case or this project. Like that's getting fuzzier and fuzzier in a very collaborative world. And in this world, what the ordinary contributor does is they wait for direction. Like, okay, I need someone to tell me I'm in charge. Like appoint me as a project manager, clarify roles. They're willing leaders, but they're waiting. And the impact players, they just step into that void and they step up and they lead. But they're the secret to the way they lead isn't that they aren't perpetual leaders. Like, oh, I'm the boss because I have to be the boss. Like, I'm always the boss. I'm most comfortable when I'm in charge all the time. They step up and they lead in those kind of ambiguous situations. But when their job is done, they as gracefully step back and follow others. You know, it's a very fluid way of leading and it's what creates agility inside of organizations and diffuses burnout. The third is how they deal with unforeseen obstacles. You know, the ordinary contributor is great at getting something off the ground, but when something gets like messy and a big obstacle drops in a way, they tend to escalate those issues. They pass them upward and quickly, like sounding the alarm, whereas the impact player, they just hold ownership they finish stronger. And it's not that they like throw their bodies on it and like, I'm going to drag this thing across the finish line heroically and then collapse in exhaustion. They just stay in charge and then they rally resources. So like in simplistic terms, it's instead of passing it up to the partner and saying, okay, we've got a problem here. It's I'm on it, but now let me get the partner working for me to help resolve this issue. The fourth is what they do when things are like in motion and moving and like, okay, we started with this objective, but somehow the project's changed. The situation has changed. And the ordinary contributor tends to like think linearly, like I'm going to stay with it. Whereas the impact player is adapting. I think the simplest way I can express the difference is they're the kind of people who finish a day of work, go to sleep, wake up the next morning with the assumption that while they were sleeping, something changed, the world changed. And so rather than just pick up where they left off and keep going, it's like, okay, what's different? How do I need to adapt and change? So they're extremely adaptive. And the last is how they deal with just unrelenting demands where there's too much work for anyone to do. The ordinary contributor tends to seek help and end up adding to the burden that their leaders, the partners, the owners of the enterprise already feel. And the impact players are people who just make work light for everyone. And they make hard, heavy work just feel lighter. And I want to delve into each of these in in the sense from just the perspective of a team member and then also from a leader in terms of how leaders can coach their team members to adopt these types of mindsets and behaviors. And early on in the book, I know you include a chapter on how team members can really grow and make progress in their careers by making themselves useful. And and you specifically mentioned a few habits uh, which involve like understanding the goals, letting go of titles and getting on the agenda. If if you could even elaborate on those three. So this is the first practice, which is not to just do your job, but to do the job that needs to be done. And that phrase, make yourself useful, really comes from an early experience I had where 
you know, I was working at Oracle and I had a job I wanted. I wanted to be like tasked with developing management training for the company. And as I was making my case to the vice president who was going to hire me into this group, he's like, that's great, Liz, but your boss has a different problem. She's got to figure out how to get 2,000 new hires up to speed in Oracle technology in the next year. What would be great is if you could help us solve that problem. Well, that wasn't the problem I was interested in. That wasn't me. Like, I wanted to teach leadership, and now this VP is asking me to, like, go teach programming to a bunch of nerds. I'm like, not my jam, not my gig. He doesn't get me. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I don't get him. Like what he's saying is, Liz, make yourself useful. Like look around you and see what's happening. See what's important and do that. What he was describing for me was the agenda. Like in every company, there's an agenda. And I found, and maybe it's because I've been in the corporate world a long time, you know, that the agendas are rarely served to you on a platter. Like, oh, here's our top priorities. Like they're changing constantly. And every like boss or partner like has a set of priorities and the best contributors figure that out. Like here's the real agenda. And by agenda, I don't mean like, oh, that person has an agenda, like a knife behind their back and they're going to stab you. I mean an agenda of what's important to them, the business agenda. And the impact players, they sent it out. It's like a heat-seeking missile that says an agenda is where there's heat. Like what's hot? What are people fired up about? And they find that and then they go to work on that agenda. And they work with what I call upward empathy, meaning instead of looking, and this comes from someone who spent a decade trying to teach leaders how to be more empathetic to the realities of people who work for them, the best contributors are empathetic as well. They're looking at their at the people that they serve, their clients, the partners of a firm, or just like the concept of like due process or law, like legal ideals are like, and they look at those people trying to accomplish it. And then instead of saying like, oh man, the client is making my life difficult. They're looking at that client going, what's difficult about the position that they're in right now? What's hard for them? And in what way might I be making things harder for them? Like, what can I do to help make their life easier? What can I do for my partner to make her life easier rather than say, man, she's making my life difficult. And so they start with this empathetic understanding of those people and organizations or institutions they serve. Because we all serve someone. And if we're not, we're probably not doing our job very well. And from the perspective of a leader, like what's something that they can do to coach their team members to not only help identify, but also just do the job that's needed? I mean, outside of you know, explicitly sharing the agenda. Well, I think sharing the agenda is the big one. I will, let me describe a moment. And this is a phone call I got from my daughter's sister-in-law, Tiffany. Tiffany is young, talented. Um, she's a graphic designer and she was leading a creative part of an advertising agency. And Tiffany was reading the book, Impact Players, and she got to this part about agenda and like, do you know your boss's agenda? She went into work that day and it just so happened that that day her boss started talking about her three top priorities. So Tiffany's ears perk up and she's like, wow, this is the agenda. And so then Tiffany is like, oh, I'm going to go to work on this agenda. She takes those three priorities. She goes back. She starts mapping out, well, if these are the three things that are important to my boss, here's what I can do. And then she starts asking other departments, well, what can you do to help us be successful at this? She goes back in a week later with her one-on-one with her boss and says, well, these three priorities that you mentioned, she didn't even get all three of them exactly right. It was like she got two of them right and one was just a little bit off. But these three priorities, here's what I think we can do and what I can get these other groups to do. She lays out the plan. Her boss is like, what? Who are you? And where did you come from? And, you know, because Tiffany has laid out this like whole case for how they can work on those three things. Her boss is flabbergasted by this. And the next one, one, which Tiffany called me right after she called, she was like hyperventilating. She's like, Liz, you will never believe what happened. She said, she called me back in her office, gave me a huge promotion. I'm now running a huge part of this agency and this race that's like bigger than anything I could have ever imagined. But it started because her boss described, here's what's important now. I call it the win. 
you need to figure out what the win is. And if you want your people to get on the agenda, like let them know at any given time, like here's what's important right now, or here's what's important to me. And we often think, well, if it's important, everyone should know it. But you know, when we get busy and in our heads, we forget to communicate. And I guess in addition to that, at least from, from my experience, what I've found helpful is, is also the providing of context, right? It's almost showing that, okay, these are the top priorities, but here's kind of the context around the bigger picture. And, and here's kind of the first order and second order consequences of this to kind of map those dots. Absolutely. And, you know, this is where I think Simon Sinek's work on Start With The Why is really, really important, which is the most important thing leaders can do is give them the context and what tends to be more evergreen. So like as things are changing on a daily basis, you can keep going back to, in essence, here's what we're trying to do. Here's what's important. Here's why it's important. Here's why it's important to me. And then instead of telling people what to do, like in this situation, the boss never told Tiffany what to do. Tiffany went and figured all that out. And I think too many leaders We spend our days telling people what to do, but what we would be better off doing is describing what's important and why it's important and then letting other people figure out how to be of service to that agenda. You know, as I was reading this, I had this thought, I think that sometimes people within an organization may confuse impactful professionals as loyal followers or those who drink the Kool-Aid. But you state that impact players, they're not just loyal followers, they're ready leaders. And I'm curious what you mean by this. Oh, yeah. You know, the ordinary contributor were people who took direction, but they ended up waiting for direction. Like, okay, I'll jump when you tell me to jump. But, you know, one of the uh, parts of the research, we went and asked these 170 managers. And whenever I do research, I always throw in something that's just, I think, interesting and fun, not even necessary for the research. And what I ask all 170 managers is, what do people do that most frustrates you? Give me all your pet peeves. What makes being a manager and owner like miserable? What makes you hate your job? They're like, oh, nothing. And then I'm like, oh, I think there's something. And then they start talking to me and there's a whole bunch of things. And then I also ask them like, what do people do that you most appreciate? And top of the list of things that frustrate bosses, number two on the list is wait for the boss to tell you what to do. We don't want people who are like standing there waiting. We don't want attendance who's like, oh, okay, you need your coat. Let me go get your coat for you. It's we want people who are anticipating problems. When you look at the the list of things that bosses most appreciate, number one, doing things without being asked. Like we want people who aren't really loyal followers. We want people who are kind of deputies and a little bit bossy. Like, you know what? Hey, I see this problem. I think something should be done. Do you want me to go do this? Yes, I do. Or, hey, I saw this problem. And I just took the liberty of going ahead and calling a meeting and like, is that okay? Yes. Like, thank you. Now, I should say there probably are some sort of jerk bosses and maybe some people who have got like lots of anxieties. Like if you do that, they might just come undone. But I think they're very much the minority. I think most bosses want people who are willing to step up and lead without being asked. Right. I guess if somebody, for example, walks by a painting and sees that it's off center, you know, they can go to their boss and say, hey, I think, uh, should, should I center this or just do it? Right. And then say, here's, you know, I've solved the problem. And I'm curious from a leader standpoint, how can they better coach their team members to step up in this way? Or in some cases, I know you mentioned even like stepping back, but it seems like it's a function of understanding what aspects you have control and influence over, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's one, it's being a permissive kind of leader. It's saying, you know what, like I will back you if you are taking forward motion, like I'm generally going to back you. I remember one point when I was working at Oracle, I could see that I was confusing everyone on my team because they would come in to give me updates on projects. And I'd get so excited to be like, oh yeah, that's great. Have you thought about this? Have you tried this? Or what about this? And their eyes would get all glazy. And so I wrote in big letters on my door, kind of functioned a little bit like a whiteboard. And so I wrote in big whiteboard marker on my door to my office. I just said, ignore me as needed to get your job done. And, you know, everyone thought that was funny, but also on that door were listed like, here are three top priorities ignore me as needed, meaning don't take me so seriously. Like if you know the right thing to do, you just do it. And if I disagree with what you do, I might just throw a small fit for a minute, but in the end, I'm going to back you. 
There's a great technique I learned from John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco. When John was hiring his first vice president into the company, a man named Doug, who's going to run customer service, he said to Doug, Doug, when it comes to this part of the business, you get 51% of the vote and you get 100% of the accountability, which I love because what he's saying is, Doug, you are in charge, not me. And see, we forget that people look to us as leaders and owners and assume we want to be in charge and that we are in charge. And when problems arise, they should give them to us. But what we have to do is say, no, 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 I'm going to create owners out of other people. And you may not be able to create equity ownership in your firm, but what you can do is you can give people ownership of a project or their world, which is like, you are the leader of this, not me. Meaning, you know what, ignore me as needed to get the job done. Step up and lead, don't wait. And so there's so many things that we need to do to permit people to work in the way that we want them to work and that really they want to work. Impact players take ownership and step up to the challenge when called upon. But what role does mindset play in approaching external and often uncontrollable obstacles? Theodore Rubin, who is a psychotherapist, who said, the problem isn't having problems. The problem is thinking otherwise and thinking that having problems is the problem. So I didn't say that quite as well as I think he said it, but, but what that means is like, you know, having problems inside an organization is not a problem. It's the norm. And it only becomes a problem when you think that it's a problem. So like if you come to work every day and go, you know what, there will be problems there's going to be adversity. There's going to be hardship. Life is full of difficulty. Like my job is to just handle that thoughtfully and gracefully and effectively. And it's the people who go in with a contingency plan for life and for work or for, imagine in the legal world, the case, which is like, oh no, there will be surprises. There will be unfortunate turns. Like they're going to happen. So when they happen, I don't panic and I don't hide. I'm just like, oh, there it is. I've been waiting for you. And I'm waiting for you with a plan. One of my favorite examples of this, Michael, was um, reading about Dr. Kevin Menace in Las Vegas. And so I think a lot of people are familiar with this great tragedy that happened on the Las Vegas Strip a few years ago. I think it was October 2017, where for reasons still unknown, a gunman opened fire on an outdoor concert. And it was the largest mass casualty incident in the United States, you know, there were 600 and something people like wounded, 470 of those people, you know, were with gunshot wounds and all the minor wounds were taken to other hospitals, but the 250 most significant gunshot wounds, people whose lives were hanging in the balance arrived at Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas. And, you know, like just imagine I know people listening to this are attorneys. I want you to imagine that you're the physician on staff that night at 10 o'clock. Like, what do you do when 200 critically wounded on the verge of death individuals arrive in the ER bay? Like, what do you do? Well, like most people would have been and completely overwhelmed and everyone would have understood like, okay, you're, you're not, an ER bay is set up for five critically wounded people at a time. But Dr. Kevin Menace, he'd been thinking about this for a long time. He's like, man, I work in Las Vegas. This is a logical target. Like, what if the unthinkable happened someday? What if there was a mass casualty incident? And what if we had like a disproportionate number of those arrive or the closest hospital to the strip? Like, what would we do if we were dealing with hundreds of people, not a couple people? And so when that call came and that unthinkable moment actually happened, he was ready. He'd been thinking it all through, like, okay, what do we do? We can't tag patients with, they normally say, okay, this is like a code red patient versus a code yellow versus a code green, you know, red being on the verge of expiring. He's like, we don't have time for that. And he had already thought, you know what, you would tag rooms. You would say, here's the red room where we put the most critically wounded patients, where we have the right medicines and equipment and physicians in those rooms. Here's, And this is how we would move them through. And what do we do when we run out of radiologists and we don't have enough time to send to the, like, you know what, I'm going to bring that radiologist down to the x-ray room to read that image. So like, and what do we do about this? And what do we do about that? And, you know, within minutes, he's like, 
got the administrator of the hospital calling on the speaker, like, you know what, call all doctors at home, get every available physician on staff, clear out the um, OR, clear the room, clear the hallways. And then one of my favorites was like anyone who's physically capable of pushing a gurney report to the ambulance bay. And he's like, if you can push a gurney, you can save a life. You know, and he's thought this through because he's anticipating this problem. And that's the mentality of the impact player is to say problems are normal. And my job is to be prepared for them when they arise. Staging dry run scenarios among team members is an effective method to address potential challenges before any true threat arises. I asked Liz to elaborate on how leaders can prepare for worst case scenarios. To do what's important here is to normalize problems. Because what happens is when leaders are like, no, there will be no problems, like failure is not an option. What do people do when they encounter situations where something has gone wrong? Well, you hide it or you blame others. The best leaders normalize that problem so that it surfaces immediately. One of my favorite executives, um, Rob Enslid, he was formerly at SAP, now runs um, Google Cloud. He's this amazing sales leader, like who delivers pipeline every time, like hits his numbers. And part of how he does it is he's so open, so approachable that sales staff, sales manager, sales leaders confess around him like, oh, you know what? We've got this deal in jeopardy. Like he gets no surprises at the end of the quarter, which is like we just lost an important deal because people are open and he creates the safety that allows people to think like, okay, well, what do we do? What are our options? Is there a way that we can save that? Is there a way that we can prove value? And basically he creates an environment where it's normal to have problems and people are at their sharpest thinking them through. So, you know, for you doing that, you're normalizing that with your team. Like, oh yeah, these things are going to happen. It could be about, you know what, bring a problem to the team and we're going to talk it through. And like dissociating, like, hey, when something goes wrong, it's everybody's job to jump in. But anything that you can do as a leader to allow people to act calmly when the problem comes. Like, oh, I've rehearsed for this. We did that in the staff meeting. You know, crazy Michael made us do that over Slack. You know, it's about mental rehearsal so we're calm in the moment. Yeah, it's like it's a constant state of of readiness. And on this note, I you know I know why some people may view like asking for help or even admitting mistakes as a sign of weakness. You argue that impact players they tend to be some of the most coachable players. Like they're constantly leveling up, they're asking for help, they're in a way to an extent I guess self managing and, and raising the bar for the team. Could you elaborate on some of the habits that you know, impact players employs in regards to asking for help? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I would have thought the impact players would have been these like steady contributors. Like I'm focused, I'm on it, I'm locked on to target. I'm going to get this done. And then it really is the opposite. It's like, oh, that's not working. Let me change plans. It's there, you know, they're rangy and they're flexible on the field, so to speak. I think the thing that is probably the easiest practice for all of us to adopt is the practice of beating people to feedback. So you know how there's always like a scene in a movie where someone's breaking up with someone and they're like, no, 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 you're not breaking up with me. I broke up with you. Like I broke up with you first. Like that's kind of what we're going to try to do here is like be the one to break up first. Ask for feedback before someone has a chance to give it to you. Like be the one to ask first because no one really likes to get feedback You know, people say, oh, I love feedback. People don't really love feedback. Most are like, I love praise, actually. I don't love feedback. But you know what we all love is we love information. And people don't like to give feedback either. Like most managers, even they're good at and they're trained at it because it feels like we're judging someone like, oh, Michael, I'm having to tell you like, you're not good at this or you didn't do that well. It never feels good. So it's reframing it from feedback to guidance and information, which is instead of asking for feedback on how I'm doing, like instead of saying, Michael, give me some feedback on how I did, it's, could you give me some guidance so that I can do that better? It's looking at guidance as just information we need, like a guidance system in a missile to help us calibrate, like, am I hitting the target? You know, because impact is a function of 
energy and thrust, but it's also a function of the vector. Did we get the vector right? So it's like, give me information to help me not improve myself, help me improve my work. Like when I started to think of feedback as guidance I needed to make my work better, I became much better at receiving it, much better at asking for it, and honestly, much better at giving it. Like I'm not giving someone feedback, like you did a good job or a bad job. I'm just giving you information you need to recalibrate. And it seems like just from the standpoint of a leader, this is easier when there's trust, right? When someone's willing to to be vulnerable, when when they know that you're a person of integrity, right? So it's just, I guess, the aspect of building trust is important here. Absolutely. But in some ways, it's saying that what if there isn't trust? Like, because if I ask you, like, Michael, give me some personal feedback, like, I need to trust you for me to be able to receive it well. But I'm just saying, can you give me some insight that would help me make this chapter stronger? It's depersonalizing it to the point where it's just easier to give and easier to receive. It's a, it's a process that builds trust rather than requires trust as a prerequisite. But of course, we want managers to build trusting relationships with their staff. And it sounds like if, if the leader is modeling these behaviors, so if the leader is asking for feedback, right, I guess in that way, perhaps it can encourage their team members to also see that that's okay. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, like asking feedback from the people you work with to the point where, and I guess what I'm saying is like, look for micro feedback, not like, oh, it's the annual performance review. Like, tell me how I'm doing as a manager. <laughs> Nobody wants to answer that question. But you could ask the question of what guidance could I give you that would help you do a better job on this? What's some one thing you need from me that would allow you to like play bigger? Or it's modeling like a fluid form of leadership. If you want people to step up and lead, but also be able to step back and follow others, you know, show what that looks like. Follow maybe a more junior partner. Like let your team see you ceding leadership to somebody else. And saying, oh, no, I don't have to always be the boss. I'm going to follow this person who's more junior than me, and I'm going to support her in this project. And was the fifth differentiator when you talk about just impact players is that they all make work lighter. And I think we all have have an idea as to what this means, because these are the people that we can all identify them. When someone says, hey, they make work lighter, they make things easier, they kind of, I'm curious though, as to like how you define this, and more importantly, I guess, how leaders can foster people to approach situations like this. Well, you know, my guess is some of you are thinking about, oh, the people who make work lighter, those are the people who are the helpers, like people who take work off my load or say, hey, Michael, is there anything I can do? You don't need to do that. I'll do that for you. And and that's one of the ways, but that's not really the main way. It's not about people who absorb other people's work. It's people who are easy to work with. They're people who don't create attacks. You know how we all know about like the brilliant person who like does great work, but working with them is painful. Maybe they're a brilliant jerk, but maybe they're just like, oh goodness, Like they're going to do good work, but I'm going to have to listen to like a rant for an hour before they'll do that work or, oh, their work is accurate, but you know, they're going to send me a 20 page epistle that really could have been 20 bullet points. So you can make work light for others by just being easy to work with, low maintenance. You know, you want to be someone that an ounce of leadership goes a long way, like, man, no, I don't need to meet with you for two hours every week. Boss, like you give me this and I'm going to come back to you with something big. There are also people who just bring lightness and levity there. You know, it's funny, one of those things that showed up very high on the list of like, what do managers most appreciate about what other people do? Make work fun. And so many of the managers said, keep us all laughing like people who just sort of have a lightness about them. One of the things we found about the impact players are certain behaviors that they always did, always got the job done on time, always did it without reminder, always did it in a way that upheld the values of the firm. There were certain behaviors that they never did, like on that Likert scale of like from always to never or nearly never. And they were things like stir up conflict, engage in politics. With any work, there's the real work, like the caseload of a firm. And then there's the phantom work, which is all of the stuff that makes the real work harder. 
and the impact player reduces that phantom workload so that people can use their productive energy on the real work. And on the opposite side of making work lighter, there's the other approach or the other practice of adding to the burden. You mentioned habits like those that require attention or contribute to stress. Um, there's a great quote that you included in the book uh, that was, I think, along the lines of like, the culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behavior the leader is willing to tolerate. Why is it important for leaders to not tolerate difficult behavior? You can boil down a lot of like problems that leaders have is if you've got problems in your organization, almost always you've created them. Like you get the employees you deserve. You get the culture you deserve. Like if you tolerate politics, you're going to breed it. One of my favorite examples was Alan Mulally, who had been the CEO of Boeing, and he takes over as the CEO of Ford. And that is a dysfunctional organization. They're losing billions of dollars each year. And there's all this politics inside of the organization. And, you know, everyone's coming to him in one-on-ones like, hey, Alan, you know what? The problem is really the supply chain guys. Well, no, it's the marketing people. Although the engineers have got this wrong. First thing he does is he cancels all one-on-ones. He's like, I'm not going to talk to anyone one-on-one. We're going to make all decisions in a team meeting. Oh, but you know what, Alan? I really just need to talk to you about this. No, I'm not doing it. He like all of that backdoor negotiating, backstabbing, game playing, side letter making kinds of, he's like, I'm not engaging in it. And it was an absolute positive no. But if you allow that behavior to happen, you're going to get it. If you allow people to sit in your office and talk smack about their colleague, even if you say, well, go talk to them first, like good talking to you, but you should deal with that. No, if you indulge that behavior, you're going to get more of it. It's just like um, as a parent, like, you know, you kind of get what you deserve. If you tolerate bad behavior in your, you know, like little tantrum throwing toddler, you're going to breed a lot more of that behavior. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to think about all these different changes. I, I know as you get towards the end of the book, um, you mentioned that the failure to change, so to adopt whether these types of mindsets or behaviors is often due, surprisingly, to an overabundance of ambition, right? not a lack of ambition. Why is that? Well, I probably said that because I'm fundamentally lazy. You know, that's probably me <laughs> like doing something a little autobiographical is that I have just found when it comes to making big changes, like sometimes the most ambitious people are the least successful. You know, when we become like overcome with, oh, I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to better diet, I'm going to be a better leader. And we get ambitious. We try to do a lot of things. You know, there's some consequences to trying to do a lot of new things. Like maybe you're overwhelmed and then you end up doing no things. Or you try to do a lot of new things and you don't do them very well. And so you're doing a lot of things badly. Or you're shocking your team because suddenly you've got this transformation of your behavior. And I found that the people who make the biggest change are people who say, I'm going to just do one thing differently. And they build a success cycle around that, which is, oh, wow, maybe what I'm going to do is I'm just going to send more concise emails. And you just let it escalate from there and create this positive cycle of contribution, value, impact, greater influence, bigger projects, bigger contribution, bigger value impact. And you let that cycle spin. And you mentioned this at the start of the podcast when, you know, people are listening to this, they may be thinking about someone on their team that they can identify, you know, one person or two people that are impact players, but who wouldn't want an entire team of impact players? And you argue that this type of dream team isn't really a dream, like it's possible. Well, I think so, because positive behavior can be infectious. And one of the things I heard over and over from managers is they describe their impact players they're people, other people on the team want to emulate. And so it's like, it requires a little thought, which is how do you identify and celebrate your impact players? And are you doing it in a way which is like, oh, here's like our star, our MVP. None of you will be like this person. You don't measure up. Or do you celebrate them in a way that feels accessible to others? Like I can be that too. Do you put other people um, in proximity to them so that that kind of influence and thinking rubs off? And I'm curious then, Liz, like, so what about, let's say you want to recruit, we're talking to like a firm owner who wants to recruit an impact player. What are some of the ways in which not only to recruit impact players, but more importantly, even getting to stay? 
Yeah, well, let's start with getting them to stay because to get impact players to come and work for you and to get them to stay is really about being the kind of coach that impact players would work for. Like it really comes to that that simple. It's like you're not going to get, you think about the best athletes of the world, they're not going to go work for bad coaches and they're not going to work in a bad franchise. And you think about like the effect of like one of these impact players, they can have this positive effect on an entire team. So how do you get that starter kind of talent? It's the book does a pretty good job, I guess, of laying out here's how they think and here's what they do. And there's a part of me that wants to believe that all of that is coachable and learnable. But the reality is it isn't all coachable, that some people come wired with a stronger learning orientation or a willingness to see opportunity in ambiguity rather than to back away from it. And so if you want a team of impact players, like start by hiring people who have the most essential qualities. And by essential, I don't necessarily mean the most important. I mean the ones that are hardest to coach and develop. Part of the research I did was to, um, we tried to kind of go the extra mile on the research and look at of the sort of anatomy of this model of working, which parts are the least coachable. And I outline them in the book, but there are things like a sense of um, internal locus of control. Like, do I wake up believing that the world is acting upon me or do I believe I can act upon the world? Like, oh no, I'm sort of in control of the things in my life. A sense of agency, like, do I have choice and range of motion? Some people are more wired with that. Some of our early career experiences will influence this. Another one that is not as easy to coach is just someone's orientation around hierarchy. Like, does someone have sort of an informal orientation of like, oh, well, you know what? I go visit whoever I need to to solve a problem. Or do they have a more like hierarchical militaristic, which is I have to escalate to my boss and then escalate to his boss and then escalate to her boss and like follow some rigid chain of command. That's heavily influenced by our upbringing and our culture. So there's a couple that you probably want to hire for, and then the rest you can develop. Yeah. And as you stated, I guess to to restate this is that nowadays it seems like everyone's saying, of course, I want to hire the best people or I want the best attorneys to work at my firm. And, And really it does start with asking the question of, well, why would they? Like, why would they want to work specifically with you and with your firm? And I think it's becoming the type of leader that these people want to follow and work with and collaborate with. So, so much of this, and I'm glad you did this throughout the book. It's really making sure that there's a sense of, of ownership from the standpoint of the leader in what are they attracting? What is the kind of the environment that they're creating? And what is the kind of the positive reinforcement of good behaviors? And then also, are they shutting down bad behaviors? And are they giving people what I think are the two like essential conditions the best leaders create? And, you know, having studied leaders who have this multiplying effect and leaders who have a diminishing effect on others, what I find, and I look at what all the best leaders do, it kind of comes down to two things. Like I could describe the best leaders in two and a half words is safety and stretch. The and is the half. (laughs) The best leaders create an environment of safety where people can speak the truth. They have like permission to go do the job that's needed rather than just the job that, you know, they have. They have the permission to step up and lead even when nobody has anointed them a leader. Like they feel safe. They have that trust that you need to be able to like hear difficult feedback. But they don't just leave it at at that. Like, what's it like to work for a leader who creates a very safe environment, but that's it. It's like boring. They also create an environment where people are stretched, where they're challenged, where they're held accountable. It's like, like John Chambers, like you have 51% of the vote and 100% of the accountability. I think I like this so much because it really captures both safety and stretch. 51% of the vote is like, dude, I'm going to back you. Like if we disagree, you're the boss in this part of the business, not the whole thing, but the stretches and you get a hundred percent of the accountability. You know, the best leaders challenge us. They ask difficult questions. They hold people accountable. They have high expectations. They keep raising the bar. They expect people to be impactful and do great work, but you don't want to work for a leader who's all stretch and no safety. There's no impact in this. 
That's just a recipe for misery and fear and people avoiding and hiding problems. But when leaders can create those two coexisting conditions, boom, like magic happens. And I know that if to anybody listening, I, I really do hope they'll pick up the book because it's so much more comprehensive than our brief discussion. But Liz, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Well, I think a game changer is someone who's just thinking. It's like you're not just playing the game by the rules and in the boundaries. Like if you're changing the game, it's like you're always thinking outside of typical and normal. And that's really what impact players are. It's that they're not just taking the typical response. They're like, we're going to change the game and we're going to keep winning at it. In some ways, like a game changer is someone who has a hyper developed sense of agency and control, which is I am not the victim of a situation I can't be successful at, which is I'm going to construct a situation and that I can be successful and the people around me can as well. I want to give a huge thank you to Liz Weissman for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Liz said that if you want to build a champion team, create an environment in which each person can offer their natural gifts and coordinate their efforts to deliver the best outcomes. Don't just set out to be a contributor to your firm, aspire to build and lead a high impact team. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Liz Weissman, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with best-selling author and the number one prison success story in the world, Andre Norman, who turned poverty and prison into a purpose-driven life. Prison is a different experience. Maximum security prison is a whole nother world. It's scary. There's no other way to describe it but scared. First time in, you should be scared to death. People get raped. People get beaten. People get stabbed. People get murdered. People get tortured daily across this country. Go to YouTube and put in Prison Riot and you will see up close and personal what's happening to people in maximum security prisons across this country. It's not pretty. So when I got there, I was scared. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.